Hello, everybody. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are going to be talking about Ratatouille with Ruby Tendow. Yes, it will be fantastic. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall. But first, I want to let you know that You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon or Apple subscriptions. Thanks so much on either of those services. You get bonus episodes and our next bonus episode will be about Jurassic Park Dominion. It's coming out pretty soon. I'm really excited to share it with you. Thanks to Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. We're talking about Ratatouille with our friend Ruby. I'm so happy Ruby came on the show to talk about this movie. I cannot wait to get into that. First, though, we're going to have a quick conversation with Amanda McLaughlin, who uh, runs Multitude. Multitude is a podcast company. It's made up of passionate people creating shows you can count on. And also, they provide ad support for shows like ours, for indie shows that want to be indie and also be able to pay some bills. And so Multitude is helping us out with that. And we talk with Amanda about their philosophy and ideas and all the things that made us excited to participate with them after being very disenchanted with the whole process of finding that kind of support for our show. We wanted to talk with you about what that means for us. You're not going to hear wild changes. We just talk about what it all means. Uh, you learn a bit about this person who we admire, whose network we appreciate, whose support we appreciate, and you learn about why it's important to us. We hope you'll continue to support if you're supporting already via Patreon or Apple subscriptions. That's extremely important in keeping things going. But yeah, we wanted to keep growing in that direction so we can keep making this show because uh, yeah, we get into all that in the conversation. And after that, we're going to talk with Ruby Tando, who has a book called Cook As You Are out in the world. This is one of my favorite conversations we've ever had about Ratatouille, specifically because we went in thinking we were going to have one conversation and we came out with another conversation. And that surprise is fantastic. And Ruby's so thoughtful and wonderful. And we were just so lucky to spend this time with her. So I hope you'll listen to our conversation with Amanda. I hope you listen to our conversation with Ruby. All in all, I'm really happy to bring this one to you. It's a lot of fun. So thanks for being you. Really appreciate you. You are good, as they say. Okay, cool. Sarah, so one thing I've noticed, mm -hmm. uh, and you've noticed too, because we do this together, is working with networks and finding ways to support the show is largely an unbearable experience. Yes. And we've attempted to do this several times. And I don't know how much detail we want to get in, but maybe we could create an imaginary company called Company A. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. We've worked we've worked with at least one company A. And uh seeing the way they made the sausage was a real fucking bummer. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so we have here, and we'll talk a bit more about it, but one thing I have noticed is when we talk about this in public, meaning when we talk about it on Twitter or Instagram, how we go about making decisions on the show, how the show is supported, why we do the things that we do. I find that like actually a lot of people who listen to the show are very interested in that 
part of the process because they Mm -hmm. never hear people talk about it. But recently after feeling very like discouraged to the point where we were like, we're never going to pursue this because this sucks so bad. We were very fortunate to meet Amanda, who is here with us at Multitude and have our first conversation with someone in this position who Hello. understood all of that and has seems to have doesn't suck some guiding <laughs> principles <laughs> most of our early conversations were one or both of you saying i've noticed that you don't suck and i'm like thank you <laughs> i've also noticed <laughs> I, here's my metaphor it's like you go on a tinder date and it's going well and you're talking about boundaries and everything and you're like wow this is going great this person is listening to me And then they're like, so I'm actually going out of town for two weeks. So do you mind staying at my house and taking care of my three large dogs? And before you have time to answer, they're like, you don't? Okay, bye. (laughs) And then you have to just live in their house and take care of their dogs. And then they never come back. And you're like, I guess I just live here now. (laughs) And Amanda, we went out with you. And then the night ended and you were like, okay, bye. And it was like, oh, wow. Text me if you feel like it. Yeah, that's, that's how I operate. Tell us about you. And multitude and like why a show like ours that's really picky and has some ideas about what we do and don't want to do would be excited to work with you. Yeah, nothing is queerer than subverting capitalism or at least finding the most (laughs) ethical way possible to live in a capitalist society. And Multitude is a podcast collective and production company. And I learned how to sell ads for myself because I am a podcaster. I've been making podcasts since 2015. And I was in the same position of saying, you know, I have an audience. I'm pretty sure this is one of the ways that I can make money and uh, get myself out of my terrible day job. But all of the companies I'm talking to either don't understand and respect my audience or want me to sell things that seem terrible. And I don't want to put my human life and voice into saying like, yes, you should buy these supplements that, you know, don't necessarily work and have, you know, terrible marketing copy that I don't feel Mm -hmm. comfortable saying. And so I started doing it for myself and then for the friends who were in my podcast collective with me and then a couple of other friends who are independent podcasters and didn't want to just kind of shill for whatever ad showed up in their inbox. So that's ended up becoming a huge part of my business. And now I help more than 25 podcasters make a living Mm. by reading ads that they don't feel terrible about. And whenever we can, supporting small businesses and working with businesses and people and entrepreneurs that may not necessarily have a huge budget to buy lots of ads, but can, let's say, do affiliate style ads or buy one ad and save up all year on a podcast they really care about. It's really not all like, you know, terribly eco-unfriendly mailboxes, meal boxes and uh, cryptocurrency apps out here. There are lots of other businesses we can work with. Yeah, I think that one of the huge things that was extremely discouraging in our process of working with like big name networks. One is just like the like intellectual property seize or approach to own a bunch of stuff that they never had anything to do with creating in the first place was discouraging. But the other was just um like Sarah, you always you always sort of what do you equate the what you know podcast deal making is like? It's like Motown. I mean it, you know, it's it deals in any industry where people don't know what they're doing or what to ask for are pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. And so I feel as if podcasts like podcasts are a really interesting medium in many ways. And one is that like they didn't exist as far as mainstream culture was concerned until 2014, which is when Serial came out. I'm pretty sure maybe 2015. But 
so it was like they had been chugging along for a while and then people figured out there was money in them. And so I feel as if the way that people try to monetize podcasts in the short term is by cramming them with so many ads that they become unlistenable. And, you know, that's a great way to to lose an audience. And I don't think advertisers have really figured that out for the most part. Definitely. And then I also don't think that hosts or producers like feel that they have enough power or leverage to try and get a better deal for themselves. I totally agree with you, Sarah. Like you you can tell when a person who works at a network or even at a brand is like, oh, aren't you lucky, little podcaster, that I am deeming to talk to you? Aren't you lucky <laughs> that I will throw you $2 to read an ad for my service when what we should be saying is, you know, you should be so lucky, network or brand, that I rent airtime in front of my audience to you. Mm-hmm. This doesn't have to be a really unequal draw where one person is just like so happy to have attention from someone else. And that's what the industry as a whole is hmm. trying to do. Like as money comes in from tech companies and venture capital, you know, it's very clear that the people making tools and decisions at a large scale just want us to cram more and more ads that are worse and worse into our stuff and treating our episodes and mm-hmm. our like precious human connection with our audience as like content that they can interrupt for pay. And I think it is really difficult to be a creator and turn down money, which is why I so respect the people who do and say like, "Mm, actually, I think it is better for me in the long term if I keep my audience's trust and make decisions that are good for them and us. And that ultimately is why something like having a thriving Patreon is a great sign for an audience. Whereas advertisers I have talked to in the past are scared of that. And they're like, well, if you have a Patreon, then they're already giving their money Hmm. to you. Why would they give my money to me? And the answer is no. That means that your audience like wants you to succeed and is really bought into you and will probably be excited if there's another way that they can, when buying a gift for themselves or food for their pet or whatever, can support the show along the way. Well, the thing, the reason I brought uh, up sort of that that Sarah assessment about about what you know sort of like what parallels there are in other industries is the thing that struck me is if I had not had 10 to 15 years in other business and and some with like overlapping entertainment related ventures I would have seen as we were had been offered like a six-figure deal as like first of all it's attention and we're entertainers and like that's amazing because attention is love and like that's like you you love me this many dollars worth that's wonderful Mm -hmm. and then also had I not like immediately started doing the mental math on some of what we were going to lose as a result of that yeah and the math on how much they wanted to cram in the show so you're listening to a show today that's entirely patreon supported and ad free and tomorrow you're listening to eight ads crammed into the middle of like a ginger conversation about our mental health in movies like Mm -hmm. it soured you know pretty quickly and then it has soured especially after having orientations with these folks and seeing how their programs work and seeing seeing what you can say no to and what you're not allowed to say no to I could totally see myself at 25 being like, yeah, I'll take it. It's absolutely better than what, however else I was making money at 25 and then feeling trapped for, you know, two years after maybe five years, maybe you lose mm-hmm. your intellectual property. Like there was just so many pitfalls that I couldn't have seen a decade ago. And you know what? Listeners are really smart. Like all of us who are on the internet right now, we can smell 
uh, fakeness. We can tell when a brand is trying really hard to like be relatable versus something that is authentically funny. Uh, how many tweets do you see that is just like such a cringy example of a brand trying to kind of recreate like the Denny's Tumblr from the early 2010s? Like there are so many <laughs> and listeners know when they hear it in your voice, like they know when you're reading a script for an ad that sucks or when you, you know, your episode mm-hmm. is interrupted falsely by like a tech that isn't actually even very good inserting ads into your episode that are like 50% louder than the rest of the conversation. It sucks and it's not good. And they know that they are not being respected in the way that I know you and I respect our respective audiences. Um, and that's that's why, you know, there, right. there really is a better way. Like it doesn't have to suck. It can be a mutual exchange of money for ad space for a product that you genuinely think is good. And the audience can take with that what they will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one thing to not want to have ads in your podcast at all. But if you choose to have ads in it, you shouldn't then automatically be agreeing to give your listener the experience of like sitting in a Jeffy Lube waiting room. <laughs> this also reminds me, this is a text I sent Alex yesterday of an ad I have essentially memorized at this point. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Cheetos Deja Tuweya. Deja Oh my God. Deja Tuweya means leave your mark. And that's exactly what Latinos are doing all across the country. They're rewriting the rules and pushing the boundaries in their communities to leave their own unique mark. They use their gift, their super poder, to make an impact, whether it's through arts, music, fashion, food, or something else. That's my favorite. <laughs> You can also celebrate by checking out the new podcast, Batman Unburied, on Spotify. (laughs) Why not? I have heard this ad like 500 times in the past two months. Yep. And the podcasters whose shows it's running on probably make like a few cents per instance of that ad. It's not a lot of money and it fucking sucks. Like that it erodes the trust and bond and just like imaginative space that you are in podcasts feel like hanging out with a friend and when I'm hanging out with my friends nobody shouts at me about Cheetos and Batman unless I'm like really in the mood and like asking them to do it and it's it's like a callback it it sucks the only person benefiting from that is Spotify and Spotify is not a person it's a corporation that does not need our trust or love or sympathy right 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 yeah and then it just kind of becomes a volume game and you can really feel it when that's happening so the the thing I do want to say is Again, another thing I think that people are interested in when they look behind the scenes of a podcast is like, we make a nice amount of money on Patreon, which is great. Um, ideally, people keep supporting us on Patreon. We're not going, it's by no means tomorrow you're going to listen to the show and have a ad suddenly and be able to unrecognize the thing. Like the whole point of collaborating with Amanda and Multitude is to like match how the show is and to help support the show. And w- I just want to give a breakdown of like what the show what the money that comes in pays for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We started this show, Sarah and I started the show to survive together during the the pandemic and Carolyn who produces the show, yeah. she was at the beginning of the pandemic, people I don't know how many people really realize this, but at the beginning of the pandemic, Carolyn was looking at over a hundred tour dates that year as a musician and saw zero tour dates. Like many people saw zero tour dates because there was a pandemic. And so this has become how Carolyn sustains herself as a musician. She gets paid to do this as an, as an editor, it's a portable thing she's able to do. And this is Carolyn's full-time job, which allows her to also be a musician, have the flexibility to do that. So thank you everyone who helps make that happen. Miranda Zickler is our, is one of our editors, um, is our primary editor. Similarly, Miranda's a musician. She, she, 
also produces um, American Hysteria. Editing is how Miranda does it as well. We pay Fresh Lesh for the beats that we use in the show per per beat every show. So we're paying artists. And finally, for the first time in I think 20 months, something like that. I don't know how long we've been doing it, Sarah, but for the first time... 22 months. This month, Sarah and I are going to see a little bit of that money. <laughs> and what that means... It, that's like Sarah. Sarah is has done a great job carving out a living in this space, and we're we're continuing in that direction. And I I work with Sarah sort of like on a logistics end in, in that arena. But this has also meant that I am able to sort of scale back my the ways that I make money, which is which is in part sort of running a video production company, and to focus on creativity again for the first time in over a decade. I'm almost forty. Hell yeah, bud! And yet you have the skin of a baby. And I'm the skin, <laughs> as you can see, I you I don't look a day over thirty seven. <laughs> this has helped liberated me from that. So so we really appreciate what you make possible. I'm sure I speak for your entire audience listening right now when I say like, that's fucking awesome. And I am so happy for you and you deserve to get paid for your work and putting a couple of ads that are gently read by your lovely voices for companies that aren't terrible for the world. That's a pretty good value calculation. Well, and I like that we held out. So the thing that we would say in those meetings with company A, we'll say the things that we held out for in those is like, we'd have the conversations like, what's your ideal ad? And I always jokingly, but really, but absolutely really was like sex toys and weed. Yeah. Like those are, that's our Mm -hmm. mission statement for stuff that we want. We want to cover. And those, and those people would always be like, ha ha ha, what, what real? And we're like, no, 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 like legit. Like that's like our guiding principle. So like stuff that people who buy these things feel comfortable with engaging and in the the morals they sort of expect of the companies they're working with like that's where we're at and you are the only person who took us seriously <laughs> yeah and our first ad is for cornbread hemp which is a really sweet family-owned company that is about to become a b corp in kentucky making ethical usda organic certified cbd products i've used them every day for years and love them to death so their samples are in the mail this is a true statement um and uh they're great i I love them. I feel great about you promoting them. Amazing. Well, it's you are help. You're really helping you and the audience, and we love we love everyone who supported us in this way. And and you now you're part of the team, and and we're mm-hmm. we're very grateful that you're helping make this happen because you know we're all people who have dreamt of being artists professionally for our lives, but also are people who live under the sort of stranglehold of capitalism and so often feel like, how would that ever happen? Yeah. And this is how it's mm-hmm. been happening for us. And we really appreciate the everyone who listens who helped makes that possible by supporting the show in any way. And you, Amanda, by by helping sort of creating another avenue that we can we the people who you listen to get can get paid and the people who make the show who are fundamentally a hundred times more important than we are can continue getting paid. A hundred percent. And if anyone listening has a business that they want to promote here on this very show, or they work somewhere with a marketing budget and want to pass that along to their marketing team, the link to Multitude and to the page where we sell ads and list all the other shows that I'm on and we sell ads for um, is in the description of this and future episodes. So you can go to multitude.productions slash ads and get in touch and support Alex and Sarah with your dollars. Yeah. And just like deha to way at you guys. <laughs> also check out Batman. <laughs> this is what one of those ads will sound like because this is one of those ads. You are good is sponsored today by athletic greens. You know, lots of people 
and I am one of these people, take multivitamins and supplements to help make sure their bodies get all the nutrients they need to stay healthy. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. Athletic Greens supports better sleep quality and recovery. They have over 7,000 five-star reviews. And in 2020, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. So check out Athletic Greens, which is a convenient way to get lots of supplements in one scoop. And if you order from this ad, you'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash good. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash you are good. All right, on with the show. Hello, how are you? Bonjour, Alexine. <laughs> Anyone can go. Oh, bonjour, Sarah Marshall. <laughs> oh my gosh, I am extraordinarily excited for both the movie that we're covering and our guest, yes, Ruby, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us what movie we're watching? Hello. Okay. Um, well, I'm Ruby Tando. I'm a food writer. Most recently, I've written a cookbook called Cook As You Are. And we are going to be talking about ratatouille, which is relevant to a lot of my interests, which is to say rodent labor rights and <laughs> cooking. <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> so important. Oh, I'm so I'm so excited. Briefly before we dive in, because we've we've talked several times. One time I forgot to record on my end or I screwed up the, the audio. I like owning that up front because people who listen also make podcasts and I like letting them know what happens. Everybody fucks stuff up, everybody loses audio, everybody ruins audio at the end. <laughs> Yeah. But both times that we've talked, one of the movies you've recommended is this movie. So what is your relationship with this movie and why is it one that you're excited to talk about? I loved this movie the first few times I watched it. However, I have to admit, I've been feeling nervous going into today because the more times I rewatch it, the more I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this. Like, I don't know like how much I love it. Hmm. And I, I kind of thought like, oh, God, am I going to have to go on and pretend I love it? And then it occurred to me, I, I don't. I can just say how I actually feel about it here and now. But I don't know if I'm being a contrarian because on paper, this movie is written exactly for someone like me. And I don't know whether I'm just being a bit like over fussy, like you won't get me that easy. Like, <laughs> But yeah, it, it's it's a film that contains, I don't know, just like so much romanticism about food and you know, like this little guy making his way to the big city, defying the odds to achieve a dream, which is is kind of the makings of any like great Pixar movie, I, I would say. Mm. But um, yeah, it has some personal relevance to me. Mm. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to get into it. Sarah, before we do, tell us. So how would you, yeah, I can't wait to hear how you describe what this movie is. Ratatouille is exactly what Ruby said. It's a film about rats. Which I guess from the from the beginning, it's like you've got me. And I'll also say that I hadn't watched this movie until we decided to do it for the show. And I was like, I'm going to watch Ratatouille now because I guess like never watched it. It came out when I was 19. So I was like in prime, not watching Pips Pixar area. I was like too young to be nostalgic for childhood. 
and too old to still be enjoying childhood stuff because I was trying to be cool. For, <laughs> I did that for two years and then I gave up forever. Best choice I ever made. So I just got to watch it now as an adult. So I can say with no sense of nostalgia that it's completely fantastic and makes me cry. <laughs> and it is the story of Remy the Rat, played by Patton Oswalt. And his brother, Emil, and their father, Brian Dennehy, can't remember his name, three Anglophone rats <laughs> living in a colony in, I guess, the French countryside. Yeah. Um, originally in the house of this old grandma who loves shooting rats with a <laughs> shotgun, I guess. And we learn about Remy having an advanced palate. So he's the poison smeller for his family when they're gleaning trash and there's this whole thing running through it of like we eat trash we shouldn't steal and it's like you're rats what are you supposed to be doing growing little crops like what is this i have big problems with this i can't (laughs) wait to get into the stealing commentary because that was the one thing that threw me (laughs) it's weird yeah so anyway we established that and then we learned that remy has happened across this chef named auguste gusteau and Gusté is eat in French, right? Or something like that? Is that right? Uh, yeah, to taste. To taste. Yeah. That's even right, because it's not manger, manger, <laughs> or whatever. Were you channeling Julia? I guess. That's, I can't, I can only, I can, Alex, I can only speak French as Julia Child. Right, that's why we love you. <laughs> Comment allez-vous? Um, <laughs> yes, and Gusto, it feels kind of like a cross between Julia Child and Paul Prudhomme, mm-hmm. maybe some James Beard. Uh, James Beard seemed like he was scary, though. This guy's not scary. He's voiced by Brad Garrett. <laughs> An interesting thing about this movie is that I don't think there's a single French person in it. It's just interesting. Yeah, we have Janine Garofalo doing a French accent at some point, And I was like, wow, I did not see this coming. It's like you really did not want to cast a French lady, did you? <laughs> Too divisive. They thought we've got everything we need right here in the United yeah. States. Let's not even, let's not worry about it. Yeah. We have Brian Dennehy. And you don't even need a real Frank chef. You have Thomas Keller. So, okay. So Remy uh, happens across the media of Gusto. He falls in love with cooking, which he practices in his own little way that somehow makes him ready to oversee a restaurant kitchen. It's a kid's movie. It's fine. And so one day the old lady starts coming at him and his brother with a shotgun. The family all escape onto little umbrella boats to like row down the sun or something and remy can't escape because he won't leave without his precious gusto cookbook which is called anyone can cook yes which i feel like your title is very similar to that it wasn't a deliberate homage but uh it it is there are parallels yes but like perhaps you are the gusto of our times or one of our many gustos okay we can't continue in this fight but yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) i handle things very similarly ruby i appreciate Uh it (laughs) okay so he ends up kind of finding his way to paris where gusto becomes his imaginary friend when he's sort of wandering through the sewers because he's very lonely and then he ends up in the kitchen where our focus shifts to the detriment of the film i think to linguini 
who's a young kid who's just shown up, who is secretly the son of Gusto, but nobody knows it yet. And he's like, hi, I want a, re- a job in a restaurant, please. He doesn't talk <laughs> like that, but he kind of looks like the Simpsons squeaky voice teenager, I think. That's exactly who he is, yes. And he's got like little arms like Linguini and little legs like Linguini. Everything about him is just is weak. <laughs> and so Linguini shows up he accidentally ruins some soup remy who's watching goes down and fixes the soup linguini figures out what's going on with remy meanwhile the head chef skinner voiced by ian holm is like well linguini you have to make the soup tomorrow night or something like that and so remy goes to live with Linguini, and rather than teaching him to cook, he lives on top of his head under his chef's hat and controls him by pulling around different pieces of hair, which is such a weird conceit that you just <laughs> have to totally buy into. And it's fine. <laughs> All of my frames of reference to this movie, which I saw for the first time today, are from references to this movie, including... Like Rakakuni? Like Rakakuni from um, every Everything Everywhere All at Once. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe that this is how we get to the rat cooking like i cannot believe that he operates hair like a joystick like he's ripley in the power loader and he operates the chef accordingly it's fantastic (laughs) funny enough it's one of the least troublesome things about the plot of the film (laughs) it's true and so basically linguini starts cooking that way he gets sort of lets the rat power his body. (laughs) (laughs) Remy's really great at this. Remy's a really fast learner himself, we must note. So Linguini rises. He proves his parentage. He takes control of the restaurant. And it feels like the end of the movie. But you're like, but wait, we're only like an hour in. This is like that law and order thing where they arrest someone nine minutes in. And you're like, that's not the guy. (laughs) Um, Because Remy has not come out as the chef yet and been recognized for his genius. And we haven't experienced the consequences of that. And so that's what happens through the work of a scary critic who is won over by being cooked ratatouille, the very thing (laughs) in the title of the movie. And then Remy ultimately gets his own little restaurant. And this is my favorite part. Um, I love when we show like somebody who's like a mouse or a shrunk down kid, like sleeping inside a Lego or using a thimble to drink out of at a rat <laughs> jazz nightclub where someone where a rat <laughs> is playing a paperclip as an upright bass. Oh, my God. I love a little mouse band. Yes. Yeah. I, I feel like that's where the film is at its strongest is when we get deep, deep into like the scale of a rat. You know, like there's that wonderful bit where where Remy kind of falls down from a skylight in the kitchen. He falls into a pot of water or whatever it is. He there's this wonderful like action sequence where you're basically just like him. You're going into an oven. Oh, you've got to jump out the oven. We're scurrying <laughs> under like some uh, like the the stands, the worktops in the kitchen. We're going like into a bowl. We're coming out of a bowl. We're hiding behind a colander. Like whatever it is. And that kind of thing, and when we have like the paperclip being played like a double bass, it's just, that's beautiful. I want more of that. I want more Honey, I Shrunk the Kids style stuff in this film. Absolutely. Yeah. Why didn't Remy's family become like the Minions? Like, where's our Emile movie? (laughs) (laughs) There is, Brad Bird plays a character in this movie. He voices a a character in this movie whose last name is Minion. Mm. 
uh, which I only noticed when I saw the credits. I assume because he directed Bis- Despicable Me. I assume he did. I'm not quite sure. Is it Mignon? Because maybe he's saying he's cute. For sure. It's for, sh- it's for sure an American <laughs> playing playing someone who's French. <laughs> Sarah, is that, is, that the, is that the end of the description? That's my summary, baby. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Tell us, actually, I think a great place to start would be when you had no questions about this movie. Mm-hmm. What place did it occupy in you and, and what are you seeing now where you're like, no, nah, okay. The thing that I latched onto when I first saw it, and I think everyone, it's the, the thing that everyone remembers, apart from the pulling of the hair, is the scene that's right at the end where Anton Ego, who's this restaurant critic, this fearsome, dour, kind of undead restaurant critic who hasn't experienced <laughs> joy in years. And he says, if I don't like it, I don't swallow. I don't like food. I love food. He's, he's terrible. They must not have known about gifts when they wrote that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Thought about that, yeah. <laughs> Very much so, right? <laughs> but um, he strikes me as a man who presented with a gift before he had that rest to eat you know, wouldn't even have been in a position to understand it, even if they'd been around. (laughs) He has this ratatouille, which sends him kind of cascading back through memory, through time to his mum, him coming into the kitchen in this French country house. And he's got a grazed knee or something. And his mum makes him ratatouille, a lovely peasant dish. You know, it's made with love and it means something to him. And he's transported back to that in a second and his eyes widen and like the whole universe pours in through his pupils and he's suddenly happy and he's full of joy. And that was the bit that made me well up. And I think it's the bit that lots of people remember as like the kind of beautiful mm. crown jewel of the film. Yeah. But it's a very small part of the film, it turns out. Yeah. I mean, this whole movie in one way or another is about pursuing and finding joy in in a number of different avenues and finding your place and kind of finding Mm -hmm. that joy and it's you know it's nice to know that even the undead uh cynical critic can find that i'm sure a lot of people who are ever under the scrutiny of any critics uh appreciate that (laughs) but see i don't actually think that enough of the movie is about joy i think that's the problem Mm. i think that's what i uh, have realized coming back to it is that a huge amount of the movie is about the trouble of running a small business. Like it is, there's very little about the joy of cooking or eating. It's about gastronomy. Hmm. So the art of cooking, sorry, the art of eating is about cuisine, the art of cooking. And it's not really about the kind of the substrata, the kind of joyful everyday stuff that underpins all that. And I I think that's where I've been getting lost when revisiting it. That's fascinating. It's true, because I love the moments about the joy in eating and cooking, but they are like very brief. And then it's like, okay, we've set that up. Now for plot. Kids love so much plot. And it's like, do do they though? Not always. Yeah. What's so interesting though is that you remember that as being outsized. Hmm. It's like the movie provided that takeaway for you we talked about this area we talked about my girl about how like sometimes when you watch a movie at a particular time you walk away with the takeaways you need and then you watch it later and you're like oh that's not doing the exact same things that i thought that it used to do or it's doing something different because i now have a different perspective it's really interesting that you watch this at one point and like the standout piece is this thing that i think lasted 30 seconds yeah uh in the movie and that became kind of a little bit of the the core of the movie you know yeah 
Well, it's like how when I think about whether I should watch Fame, I'm always like, well, Fame is the movie with suck your thumb like a little schoolgirl Coco. And that scene lasts like two minutes and the movie is two hours long. But I'm like, no, no Fame, you know, because <laughs> the most powerful stuff expands to take up the most room in your memory, for one thing. Yes. And why, why do you think that that is something that you gravitated toward when that first hit you and, and it's something that stood out as a standout? memory of the movie i think it's one of the few moments in the movie that has like genuine emotional weight Mm. and i think it resonated with me just because i mean doesn't it resonate with everyone the idea that you might be hardened to the world you might might have become kind of calcified over the years and jaded and all of these things and then something pierces through and you remember a little bit about what it felt like to be full of curiosity or to experience something for the first time and it just shatters all of that and you feel like soft on the outside for the first time in a long time it's a it's a feeling that is is powerful and when you see it depicted in film it i mean for me anyway it's just beautiful to see it is such a beautiful moment i was doing the math on what was happening in 2007 and i can only speak to american culinary movement stuff but like in 2007 top chef showed seasons two and three. I think that those were the seasons that showed like Top Chef was relatively new in the States. There was the beginnings of whatever sort of we consider 21st century culinary, like elevated things at at restaurants where things went from being like exclusively like a family restaurant to being like people who did particular things really, really well. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And then that sort of like had like a lot of implications about gentrification. There was like a lot of stuff that was going on in that. And it's only relatively recently in the face of that movement, that's a 15 year trajectory and movement. And obviously like Bourdain had a huge part of that here, like all sorts of things were happening in there. And Bourdain was kind of the only person, at least in, in the States who was like, I don't need it to be fancy. I just need basic things done well. Hmm. Yeah. And who also was like, yeah, I drink shitty beer. Fuck off. Right. You know, when he visited Portland, Maine, he went to the the dirtbag oyster place, not like the fancy oyster. Like he's this idea that I want sort of something that's done well and that we recognize and just like have it done well. Like that's what I'm looking for. And it feels like mm-hmm. it took the rest of the overall movement here at least a decade to catch up with that idea that it's like, I don't need... You know, that, that season of Top Chef in 2007 f- centered on foams. Really? A season? Well, no, no, it didn't. There was just like one character okay. who was like, was foaming. Everything was foam. <laughs> that is a lot of foam, though. That's so much foam. And then the movement eventually shakes out to like, Sarah, like the Jonathan Gold thing, where again, it's like, I want to go to a strip mall that does things very, very well, rather than kind of like a fancy experience. And this movie came to that conclusion while focusing on sort of like the fancy stuff, while focusing on the legacy hmm. stuff, while focusing on sort of like being elevated for the sake of elevated, it came to the conclusion that it's like, I just want like a good peasant dish done well at the end of it uh, before everyone else got up to it, at least here in the States. But just arranged in a little cone. Yes. That concession must be made. I, I like that about it as well. But I think there's a lot of, uh, I think there is a deep, and dare I say, very American ambivalence towards Frenchness and French cuisine and French value judgments in this film. Mm-hmm. It, how do I put this? Sometimes I, I feel like 
English people have a have a kind of time old distrust of the French for reasons you can imagine, close neighbours, lots of wars, all of this stuff. And I think English distrust of French people comes from this kind of belief that they're wrong in how good their cuisine mm. is and how good their culture is. We just think that they're wrong. Not all of us. I'm just saying that's the kind of general big cultural idea. Also, wouldn't it be annoying to have a neighbor who's famous for being sexy and everyone comes over and they're like, your neighbor is like the sexiest person I've ever heard of. And you're like, she's not that great. <laughs> it's exactly like that. It's such a defensive position. It's just like those guys, they don't know what they're talking about. They're snooty. They're haughty. They're terrible. And they're wrong on everything. Their food isn't even good. It's like, I'm sexy. Excuse me. I'm the sexy neighbor. I've got ruddy cheeks and eat, you know, old hard oat bread. Yeah. But uh, I think the American distrust of Frenchness doesn't come from a belief that the culture is wrong, but kind of a fear that they might be right. And I think it's like this real insecurity, like, what if they're onto something? And that that's, for me, that's like at the core of this film is this kind of there's so many jabs at like French snootiness and French like ritual and all of that. But then there's also like mm -hmm. this amazing reverence for like, you'd go to Paris. Paris has to be the food capital of the world. This is where things are done properly. Not like American fast food, like when they try and rebrand Gusto as like a kind of right. corn dog salesman, right? Like this is, it's <laughs> so ambivalent. It hates Frenchness and it also loves it and covers it, covers it so much. It's really, it, it's torn apart. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. That's such a great point. And I do think that's the attitude Americans have toward the French. And I just watched, I was just recommending this to Alex and Carolyn. Um, I was watching on the Criterion website, the director's and screenwriter's commentary for Charade, which they made like 37 years after it came out. So it was just everyone arguing the whole time about what they remembered <laughs> happening um, and whether Audrey was tall. But... That was a movie made by Americans about Paris and that I think was so successful and remains relevant for like a few reasons. But one of it is that like Americans just love watching Americans. There's no Americans in the lead roles in that movie. It's a British guy and a Belgian woman, but whatever. Americans love watching English speakers in Paris doing almost anything. And yet, yeah, we're like deeply suspicious. We renamed a fast food <laughs> and defiance at one point. Like, Alex, what do you think about this? Because New England is an interesting area with regards to all this. Maine especially, I would imagine. Well, Maine, I mean, Maine has an interesting relationship with French people because ha half of the sort of white population primarily are derived of French speakers from Canada. Right. That's like pretty regionally specific. Like I think few people tie that to France. I think it's like still seen mm -hmm. as like pretty relatively localized. I think what Ruby has said is extraordinarily accurate about our perception of France and the French and French culture and how things are gotten, but also about our relationship to everything, which is... Hmm. I will take the parts that I find interesting and sexy and be intensely skeptical of everything else around it because mm. to embrace it in any way suggests that there might be something wrong or out of place about my working philosophy. And like that's yeah. for the majority of Americans that like the American ideal is built upon a teetering series of fallacies is only relatively new to the three people on this call. So um, I could see those biases being packed, you know, pretty intensely, even in like a Disney movie about a rat that operates a chef like a like a video game. 
Yeah, especially in a Disney movie, in a sense, because they're one of our last remaining. Like, certainly Disney is stronger than the government. We all know this. (laughs) (laughs) It's for sure. Yeah, totally. That's absolutely right. I feel like this with the Frenchness and then the kind of dual like admiration and distrust does come round to the idea of stealing. I'm curious to hear Hmm. like both of your perspectives about like that plot line in the film and what that means. I, Sarah, I can't wait to hear. It was so weird to me. It was so stuck out. I can't tell. What was your take on all of the references to not stealing and making your own thing? <laughs> it was like almost paranoid. Yes. Here's the moment I like least in this movie. When Linguini wakes up, he's brought Remy home for the night. He wakes up. He thinks that Remy has like run off with his food, which it's like, how, how would he have opened? Whatever. And then he realizes that Remy has cooked them both omelets And like my favorite thing in this entire movie is like Remy's tiny omelet that he made for himself. It's like the cutest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. And still very generously sized in proportion to his body. That's true. It's like a big diner omelet for him. And then Linguini's like, where did you get that basil or whatever? And he points to a rooftop garden nearby and Linguini's like, you can't steal. And it's like, it's one leaf. Or like a few leaves, my God, this is just rule of the countryside, man. It's literally the same exact function as the constant reminders in Terminator 2 that the Terminator can't kill humans. John Connor <laughs> constantly reminds, you can't kill people. He's like, all right, I'll just shoot him in the kneecaps. That message about not stealing comes up like four times in this movie. It's like the first law of rat botics or something. <laughs> um. There's like one really nasty iteration of it as well, where I think it's Remy says a cook makes a thief takes. And I just found it like so sad, like so incredibly sad. Yeah, it's weird. And what about all the rats who can't be chefs? Which is all, well, I guess they're like working in the restaurant, but they can't all work there. And like, I love rats, partly because I had pet rats as a little kid. So did I. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Rats are the best, dude. Alex, I'm sure you had like friends as a teen who had rats. I didn't, but I had, I did, to your point, I did have friends who had rats. I engaged rats when I was at, it's not a foreign concept to me. I understand their sweetness. Yeah, exactly. And rats are kind of like pit bulls Mm -hmm. because everybody hates them. So like if you love rats, you feel like you're queen of the rats. Yeah. (laughs) And they have creepy little human hands and (laughs) foot paws. So yeah, and they're so smart and they're so sweet and they're just like really personable. And like they've done various studies showing that rats are empathetic to other rats and they become more empathetic to the plight of fellow rats if their fellow rats are in an experience that they've just had. Yeah, so I love that Ratatouille is about rats, but also like I think one of the reasons humans have this animus toward rats is like, yeah, they invade cities and sometimes they bite babies and stuff. Only if the baby has food on their face, to be fair. They don't want to eat the baby, usually. (laughs) Mostly they don't. There's something more easily attainable between them and the flesh of a baby. They'll get that. Yeah, exactly. You know, rats are a pest and a parasite and they survive on the garbage of another species and they take over everything and they survive everything and you can't kill them and you can't get rid of them and they just want to live, man. (laughs) 
And so you know what I'm getting at. They're exactly like us. Yeah. Like they're rats. They're going to steal. That's and they're going to steal garbage, which is not stealing. It's not stealing. And also Remy didn't get to eat his little omelet. It would have taken like two seconds. <laughs> yeah. R- Ruby, what's your take on the on the stealing piece? Like what? how did that hit you this time? I found it really, really jarring, especially because, and it it doesn't even make any difference, but it is garbage anyway. Um, Even if it wasn't, like, if we're being completely honest, most rats can't join the workforce. So I don't know what you expect (laughs) them to do, um, if not steal food. But um, this is the thing in the film that really kind of reveals some of the the value systems that underpin the film and and it's i think a film not about food and not even really about cooking or friendship or collaboration but about the redemptive power of work yes and i think that is the most american story you could possibly have uh, yeah. great point Fuck yeah. and i think it is absolutely inseparable from the fact that it's set in france which that it doesn't matter what the material realities are like of like work and politics in France. I think there is a view of France as like this absolutely feral country where everyone strikes all the time and they've got too many rights and they don't want to work and they're socialist in some way. It doesn't matter what the, what's really going on. I think this is maybe kind of a bit of an American idea about what goes on in France. Mm-hmm. I think that anxiety find finds its way in and and so you have to go really hard against the idea that anyone would get anything that they didn't sweat for they didn't die Mm. and toil for like i i think it it kind of balances its sensibilities through that little piece yeah that's marvelously stated Mm. the message about stealing is both literal and figurative because it's and it's wrong on both counts like one to your point about like the workforce and labor yeah, I mean, like in the, you know, in, in the States, especially, I can't speak to anywhere else, but in the States, especially, we're told that that is what you have to do to make it. We're shown diminishing returns every year because corporations are allowed to do just whatever the fuck they want. Mm-hmm. And then the worker is always blamed for that gap in productivity and being able to see any fruits of the labor. Mm-hmm. You know, we suggest that everything can be healed by more work. And it's not yeah. an exaggeration. I mean, it's not an exaggeration. That is the fundamental ideology of of the united states yeah we truly believe that we we're, we have long been told that like the fundamental reality of the united states is is it's a multicultural melting pot where opportunity exists for all and that is just kind of a costume put on the reality that the mm-hmm. actual one is like rich people tell us to work all the time there's diminishing mm-hmm. returns and it's it crushes us year after year the other place where it doesn't make any sense and I, I'm really curious to know your take as as both a food writer and, and a person who makes food. It's a kind of not a moral lesson, but it's a lesson about cooking, too. It's like a good mm. chef doesn't steal. They create. And so much of creating is about following inspiration and, and, and emulating and working from existing paradigms. To some extent, it sounds like it's like you have to. And I know that this isn't what ultimately happens, but one at least one of the takeaways when we hear it from the ghost chef. <laughs> is is you know you kind of get to like make make your own thing which is another extremely american idea like like fundamentally mm. individualist mm. and it's not surprising that the chef is not actually real the chef is the figment of an american rat's imagination 
Yeah. The chef at some point reveals to him that he's like, are you a ghost? He's like, no, I'm in your head. Even It even nods to itself as being like, this isn't a movie about France. This is a movie about our imagination of like what we think that it is as seen by Remy. So, so yeah, as someone who does cook <laughs> and tells other people that they are able to do it and shows them that they're able to do it, like, what's your take on, on that end of the message? Not the literal stealing, but the figurative stealing. I mean, I think what I find interesting about where so much of this comes from you're right it is Remy's kind of it it is Remy giving telling himself what he needs to hear what he wants to hear in the moment Mm. I think what is telling about it and I'm not sure how this ties into my cooking but I'm sure we'll get there eventually it's just how much of this is just generational baggage you know it's the fact that Mm. his dad all of his family, his friends, his comrades, they're all scavengers. That's what they do. That is how they have survived for time immemorial. And he's not like the other rats, you know, like he, he's a different kind of rat. He's a rat that like is going to forge ahead and create his own good stuff. Right. And it just is so obvious how much of this comes from being a contrarian, I think a little bit. And obviously he has his own dreams, right? He loves tasting things. He loves cooking. But I find it telling that he comes to Chef Gusteau because he's read this book and this book is called Mm. Anyone Can Cook. And it's Gusteau, not as a chef in a kitchen in Paris that I'm sure costs a lot of money, but Gusteau in a popular cookery book designed to reach the masses. Like that's how Remy encounters Mm. Gusteau to start with in this wonderful, accessible way. He kind of loses sight of that and he he becomes so hooked on the this idea that a chef is like this towering figure this authority and should um be acclaimed and all of this stuff that he he loses that he loses the fact Mm. that gusto was impressive precisely because he wanted to communicate his passion and i think remy is a terrible communicator of his passion he can never explain to emile what he's finding exciting about food. Like he tries to explain to his brother, like try pairing these flavors. And Emil's like, oh, I'm getting there a bit, but I can't quite get there. Mm. And I don't think that's Emil's fault. I think it's that Remy is interested in food in quite an esoteric way mm. and not a relational way hmm. necessarily. That doesn't answer any of your questions, but I just... No, but I love I love thinking about relating the the difference between relating to someone, you know, relationally and in a way that's esoteric. That's a fascinating way to think about that. Well, our favorite YouTuber, Jenny Nicholson, has done, I think, at least a couple of videos on sort of this theme of elitism and Brad Bird <laughs> movies and, you know, like The Incredibles 2 and just the, and this idea in those movies of like the villains are like normal people who pretend to be super, but they're not super. They're just normal. Mm. And this so this kind of thread in, in his films of like people who are born gifted and people who are not. And so it's funny. It feels like the movie is torn between this like genuine populism and this stated thesis that anyone can cook, but also like, should they though? (laughs) Like Remy himself said. Yeah. It's also funny that Remy, Remy has taught himself how to cook conceptually with no tools and therefore is a genius. But Linguini just like, I mean, it doesn't seem like he wants to. I think he wants to be a roller skating waiter. But it's like, okay, but like he hasn't really had a chance to learn anything. So like he could become a good cook if he, okay, whatever. Well, I, that's the thing. The thing that I did like about this that was also a fault of it is in most Disney or Pixar movies, there's one hero's journey. 
right? Mm -hmm. And in this one, there is only one hero's journey, but we see different familial trajectories. So we have Remy, who, to your point, Ruby, is dealing with parental and family baggage and wanting to pursue his passion despite the baggage of what is expected, what is expected of their, their kind, what is expected of the limitations of, of rats like them because of sort of like the place in society. Like there's a lot going on by way of that baggage. And then over on Linguini's end, we see the, um, the yeah, totally. We see the, the, <laughs> the issues of uh, and the the issues and fallacies behind legacy, right? Because on his end, it's like mm -hmm. he's inheriting the namesake. Well, not the namesake restaurant, but he's inheriting his rightful, he's the rightful heir. And finally he's there. And they're not like, and now he's like a better chef. They're like, no, he's like a roller roller skating maitre d'. Like that's what he's up to. And we're not going to sort of like magically solve that. We're just going to be like, he pursued what he is actually interested in, but they don't really spend any time kind of making that connection. And then on the critics end, it's not a familial thing, but we see him essentially resolve a childhood, <laughs> not a childhood <laughs> trauma, but um, undoing, you know, years and decades of cynicism by mm. reconnecting with a child. And I like that it touches on all of that. I don't think because it's trying to do all of that, it gives enough space to any of that. But I do like that it gave like different trajectories and outcomes regarding sort of like what your rightful thing is to do based on sort of what the people who came before you do. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we could get rid of floppy linguini altogether and the film wouldn't suffer <laughs> that much. Like I honestly do. Like I, I really struggled to care. I actually found him very irritating. I think too many executives were like, we need a human in this brand. We can't, <laughs> this can't just be all rats the whole time. More rats. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, more rats forever. I mean, one thing I loved about the figuring out which which parts of your your heritage or your family kind of tradition you're going to pick up and which you're going to leave behind. I actually loved Remy's dad, who I don't know if he even does have a name. I think he is just like dad with a capital D. He's just hmm. he's like a trade union boss or something. He has that air about yes. him that's like <laughs> wearied, but um, kind of going to like guide everyone towards just this wonderful little ecosystem that I think he's created where they have like jazz and everyone has enough to eat and they even have escape rafts and they've got all these wonderful things. Anyway, Remy starts walking on two feet and his brother says to him, dad's going to kill you if he sees you walking on two feet like that, which I just thought was such a beautiful line and uh, such a lovely hmm. nod to I don't know. I think you can imagine a dad being like, boy, we need to straighten you out. If I see you walking like that, if I see you sauntering, if I see you, you know, whatever, whatever like euphemism for kind of put on intellectual, whatever, whatever mm. characteristic, anti-masculine, then I'm going to sort you out, which I don't think is like, yeah. I think it's fair to say it's a something that Remy should push against. But I also find Remy so mm -hmm. annoying that it's, it's really hard to take it seriously. Walk on all fours. And also, like, to be fair to, like, his position as well, at one point he's like, listen, Remy, this is what happens when rats get too close to humans. And then he, there's all these dead rats that we see. And it's like, yeah, the humans in this movie were amazingly good-natured about accepting that they they were there was just going to be this restaurant where the whole kitchen was just filled with rats the whole time. <laughs> and it's also an interesting and I think probably accurate <laughs> commentary on the restaurant industry 
that Remy gets his own restaurant before Colette does. Thank you. And yes. I'm not saying he's not great, but she seems she we know she's been in the game for a lot longer. Like, let's be honest here. And she's yeah. a human. Yeah. Could you speak to the gender politics of this movie, Ruby? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just Colette is like a standout character in the film, right? Like she's just she's like quite bristly because she has to be and she's kind of like she's like sharp and she's also so caring and she's so warm to Linguini while she thinks that he has something about him which I would contest that he he doesn't at all even for a second (laughs) he has a rat on his head that's That's exactly it that's the beginning and end of what he has to offer but um, she's gorgeous. She's lovely. She's fantastic. And she's so skilled. And she's been working in that kitchen for ages. She knows how everything works. She's studied all the recipes. She knows everything by heart. And then this rat comes in who has the, the, the arrogance and like the book learning of like an undergrad philosophy student just comes in and is like, I know how this works. You know, I, I don't know how a bechamel should feel, but I've read it in a book. I don't know, you know, how to keep uh, the commie chef happy while someone else gets promoted but I have looked at this diagram in anyone can cook like three times and considering all of that and the fact that he then leapfrogs over her and becomes the like head chef of Le Ratatouille their new small business I, I think she has exceptional grace in becoming his sous chef after that <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. That was tremendous. I was just wondering, who do you think? Because I, I rewatched this a couple of times. I couldn't figure out who else is in that kitchen of this new restaurant that they start. Is it rats? Because <laughs> we only see, we see Colette and we see Remy. And I'm like, who else is there? I assumed it was rats. I assumed it was like <laughs> Colette and like 80 rats. <laughs> yeah, like like Rizzo in The Muppets. Like he's just like sk- skating along on the flat top making food for people. <laughs> and it's like, and that's unfortunate because she doesn't speak rat. So like she can't gossip in there. I guess they can listen to music. Rat jazz. <laughs> this is so fascinating, actually, this, the way that this conversation is going, because we had a live stream a couple weeks ago and someone had asked, is there a movie that like you had felt very strong sentiment for that you revisited and you were like worried to revisit because you had to sort of get into it? And I appreciate that we're talking this talking about this like with a reverence, but also are being critical about this movie because I this is certainly a movie I could see one's take changing on every couple of years based mm-hmm. on what they relate to within their own profession, their own passion, their own relationship with family baggage, et cetera, because there's so many things that are nodded at throughout this movie that never kind of get super fleshed out, but fleshed out enough for you to be like, oh, I can, mm-hmm. I can see myself there. I can yeah. see something in that. I also appreciate you referring to the uh, undergrad philosophy major, which I was and so know was exactly who you're talking about. Oh, God. <laughs> Did you have the guy who always equated something to a Simpsons episode? Because I noticed that in every class. I don't know why that I happened. I mean, that but. would have been preferable to what I had to deal with. I would have I would have taken that. <laughs> oh, my God. That's beautiful. Sarah, as a person who had not seen this movie prior, mm-hmm. like what? were you expecting and how did it match to the actual experience? Well, I knew it was about a little rat who wanted to cook. <laughs> so, so that promise was fulfilled. It ha- it was like heavier on plot than I expected. Like 
I feel like the watershed moment really happened with Coco because I went into that being like, okay, this is going to be about this kid and his family is all the same and he's different. Got it. And then it like the plot doubled back on itself a couple times. And I was like, literally like, oh, oh, my God, this is a <laughs> roller coaster because I guess my expectations of Disney are so low. And so this is like between kind of Disney Renaissance plotting and Coco. Mm-hmm. I think where it's like there's a whole story that happens and it's like, but wait, what about like Linguini, like having completed his quest and then having to be taken down a notch and reveal that he's controlled by a little rat who sits on his head and then justice for the rat and everything. Yeah. I mean, I my to me, the the big emotional moment is ego eating the food. I mean, it's like it's so beautifully done. It reminds me actually of the diner scene in Goodfellas where they're doing the dolly zoom the whole time. So it's like everyone's sitting still, but like something's happening. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they played a train sound when they like went into his past, which I like because our memories are brought Mm -hmm. to us on tiny trains (laughs) inside of our brains. I So one thing I'm interested in and want to talk about though is this. So Colette gives this sort of like, Showing La Ropes, as the soundtrack says, speech to Linguini about just sort of like, this is how you have to behave in a restaurant, like keep your arms in, keep your workstation clean or I will kill you, etc. All the good stuff. And one of her points is like, you think cooking is easy because it's what mommy does, but mommy didn't have to do, you know, all these things. You cannot be mommy, Um, she says. You cannot be mommy. (laughs) But then at the end, it seems like you do have to be mommy. So that's really interesting mm. with ego, because what does he want? He wants mommy. <laughs> yeah, what do you guys think about that? I, I liked that a lot. I love you cannot be mommy. That's like my favorite line in the entire film. It's tricky. It's tricky because it's I think so much of the, the trouble with the film is it wants to leap. It wants the big stuff. Mm-hmm. It wants to value the big stuff and kind of be respected in that way without dealing with the the everyday stuff this is very deliberately a film not about a rat that wants to cook for his hungry family but a rat that wants to cook for strangers in a restaurant kitchen Hmm. and it's about chefs rather than home cooks something somewhere in there is this stuff about what kind of cooking are we going to do are we going to do like man cooking are we going to do like incredible gastronomy and and all of this or are we going to do like the lady cooking that hits to someone's heart and makes them travel back and re-experience like Mm. a moment of childhood vulnerability like there's quite a I I think quite a line drawn between those styles of cooking and I think the film isn't really sure which one it values because at the end of the day yeah ego is is touched by the cooking that reminds him of mum but still the line the central thing in the film is the idea that this rat is a genius and because he is a genius he should be head chef of a restaurant and he should probably eventually get Michelin stars which is is quite confusing in terms of I can't imagine watching this as a child and coming away from it with a clear sense of like what I'm supposed to be thinking apart from wow rats are fun (laughs) well that's I mean we've we've talked about that with like Jurassic Park it's like when I saw Jurassic Park when I was 10 I was like dinosaurs not like Corporate malfeasance, you know. <laughs> the I just saw Soul finally, and I don't. I know Sarah hasn't seen it. Ruby, have you seen Soul? 
I have. I, I, at least now thinking about it in in juxtaposing against this movie, its primary message seems to be like celebrating play and passion and experience. Like it kind of has like a the exact anti capitalist message. The exact antithetical message to this movie at least as far as like capitalism and work goes which is like you don't have to be great at a particular thing you just have to have passion and sort of like love and wonder Mm. and i'm really actually appreciating Mm. that more now that i've just seen this we're talking about this remy's almost just like compulsive remy's not it doesn't seem like he's driven by uh, a passion that can be articulated outside. He's just like, I'm I'm naturally good. I'm so good at this thing. I was put in charge of detecting poison. And it seems like there's actually like other things I can do with it that are interesting. But we don't get a real insight into like the play. And now I'm negating what I said earlier. And you already have Ruby. A, a look at the pursuit of joy. <laughs> joy is yeah. missing. Everyone is just driven. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do love the part where he's explaining cooking to a meal and like putting the flavors together. But it's interesting because even that he frames as like there are flavors out there that no one has found before. Mm-hmm. And it's like exploration. It's nice. But also it's like anytime you think you found a new flavor, it probably is just like you're a white person making Vietnamese <laughs> food or something. Right. Very much so. And also that scene, right? Like in, in case for anyone who's not seen it, you don't like zoom in on like the texture of a strawberry or like the little holes in cheese that maybe a rat would mm. be better placed to see than a human or the texture of like toasted bread and the sound that it makes when you run a knife across it. You don't zoom in on any of that. You don't get the rat's eye view of like the tiny detail and all of that amazing stuff. You just, the screen goes dark behind a meal as he's trying to taste this stuff and you just get like these little abstract pops of colour and a little flash of this, a little blob of this. And the food is almost not there at all. And I, I think that sums up Remy's mm. approach to food. As much as he loves it, it's so abstracted from the actual joys that are right in front of him. Mm. I think that's why he struggles to share that joy with other people, really, when he's talking about it. Ah, This has really emerged as like a really kind of realistic character study of a chef. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, like, I, I, I really, I struggle with Remy. I find him really annoying. But the things we find most annoying in other people are the things we see in ourselves. So, like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I too, just like Remy the Rat was a philosophy undergrad and uh, kind of took a very, like, bookish approach to cooking as well when I finally got into it. And I thought I knew everything despite having no experience at all and like would walk into a kitchen thinking I could probably do better than these cooks. Like, I'm sure I've got this. I've read that other book twice. Mm-hmm. Like, I see it. I've been there, you know, and, and leaving behind as well people that you could cook for and who would appreciate the food you put in front of them in order to strive for greatness instead. Like, I hate it in myself. I hate it in him. Very equal opportunities hater in this regard. (laughs) I've recently started after years of not being my most creative self has started taking pictures again, started shooting photos again, and I'm loving it. It's amazing. I love it. I received from a friend who has experience being a technically great photographer because of some experiences that she had in like workshops and photojournalism and stuff. I appreciate where it was coming from, but sent like an unsolicited nine part message about technical feedback on on one photo and in my head i was like well i'm like kind of just doing this for the 
the joy. Yeah. Like it's like people bring the baggage that they have with whatever it is. And it's like, we're going to like jump into kind of like the hone in super hard on the technical elements and forget like the, the, all the other reasons that people do things. And I have absolutely been there in a number of different arenas. Mm -hmm. And Remy reminds of that drive. Yeah. Remy is like the character that probably a lot of people can identify with being at a certain time in their lives. And I guess I would really like to see Ratatouille 2, oh, where Remy gets knocked down a peg by a series of life changes <laughs> and has to like find himself by, I don't know, working in like a humble diner in Provence where I'm sure they have a ton of diners. So like a chef <laughs> remake? Or a crossover. <laughs> but you know what? I want to know where these um, other cooks, where did these other cooks go? Like we, we established early on in the film when they're kind of giving the, um, yeah they're, they're kind of showing you around the kitchen. As a, as a viewer, you get to learn like what a sous chef is, what a commie is and all of this stuff. And we learned that like one of the cooks has been to prison and one of them ran away from the circus and one of them like has killed a man or whatever it is. We learn all this about the fact that kitchens are full of misfits and I've worked in kitchens. This is true. Some of the yeah. weirdest people on earth working kitchens and also some of the most mm-hmm. resilient and, and generous and creative and all of this stuff is, is a real kind of magnet for weirdos, which is a beautiful thing. But we see this at the start of the film and then we're like, I, I can only assume that Pixar decided that talking about how the kitchen can be a kind of a space of family and connection for these people would be too conceptually difficult for the American child. (laughs) So it was like, we need a simpler hero, someone else who's an underdog, but in a way that's not at all conflicted. We'll have rats instead. And then when the rats take over the kitchen, all of these, you know, people, just normal, normal freaks are out on the street without a job. I don't know if they ever go back to a kitchen. You know, we've ousted, we've ousted them a great point to your point i started working in kitchens at 12 did it straight till 22 and then worked in tour catering for on and off for a long time and i still like my vacation is to cook for music camps and i love people who are drawn to kitchens and you know i'm so glad that they nodded to it they nodded to like the dynamic background Mm -hmm. of everyone you work with in a kitchen is fascinating like right down to the fact like that guy murdered someone like that's like (laughs) That's who you're working with in a kitchen and or like this person is like getting their PhD. Like it's a wild assortment of people. I'm glad they nodded to it. They kind of don't go anywhere with that. But I'm every time I learn that someone has worked in a kitchen, like we have hours of potential fertile conversation ahead of us because, you know, you have have some real stories. (laughs) Here's, Here's my question about kitchen work, because I haven't had the pleasure because when I make mistakes, I cry about them. Um, and that's not a good personality for that. My understanding is that it's backbreaking work, but on the other hand, you don't get paid enough, but on the other hand, you have to be very skilled to do it. So like, I don't know, I guess I just find that really interesting. Like, I don't think there are that many jobs that are all three. Mm, It's very much the worst of all worlds, I think, unless you have quite a specific personality and, and way of, of working. It's really fucking hard. It's really, really hard. And I I work in a cafe at the moment, which is like not so demanding, but I've worked in like restaurant kitchens and production kitchens before. And I just, I personally, I, I'll admit I am a weak person. I don't have the mindset. I don't have the stamina. Like I get too in my head if I'm just 
going through the rhythms of the kitchen, which are like really, they kind of take you, they grab you by the scruff of the neck mm. and they drag you around the kitchen for between eight and 14 hours. I don't have that stamina and I don't have the strength for it. And I have a huge amount of respect for anyone who does. It's really, really hard work. Definitely. And I, and my, my experience is like, there's two kinds of people who have longevity in kitchens. And one is people who are skilled and passionate in that arena and they're developing their skills further and they're finding their place. And the other are just people who continue working in kitchens. And I don't say that in a shitty way, but like there's always, at least here, there's always demand for people who will work in a kitchen to for the reason, mm-hmm. Sarah, that you articulated just now. And there are some people for whom that is for whatever reason, the only the only place that they're able to thrive, sometimes it's particularly people with criminal records, it's the mm-hmm. only place you can get hired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And often giving the giving the kitchen or the establishment much more than the establishment deserves. <laughs> I think um that is the thing that would that saves kitchen movies and actually movies about food in general is is when they focus in on on those relational aspects and what passes emotionally and food-wise between people rather than actually being so hung up on the food or in the case of this movie, like so hung up on what happens when you have a health inspector come round or whatever it is. Like I think that that we, we want more of the relational stuff mm. if possible. Mm-hmm. I love chef. I don't know how, how you feel about chef, but I think that that's why chef works is it's about like sad, weird men trying to figure out how to like get along. And they also make some interesting food along the way. It's not interesting food or sideways is actually another great example of this is it's about like two sad mm-hmm. dirt bags and their relationships to each other in the world. And one might walk away thinking it's a wine movie, but it is not. Hmm. On, on that note, it just... It strikes me that the central relationship in this film, which is between Linguini and Remy the Rat, is not even a relationship. You know, is it a relationship if you're not communicating, if you're just doing this like uh, puppeteering thing with the hair? That's not a relationship. That's not like meeting someone and making a decision between you. Yeah. I think there should be a food movie about two sad women. How about that? Mm. Feminism. Yeah, I'd love it. You know, there are all sorts of directions one could take food writing. Why is that kind of relatability or sort of a more like democratic approach to to making these things uh, possible or approachable? Why is that something that why is that your pursuit? I'm quite um, like I've burned quite a few bridges in like the British food media. Luckily, I've not burned them with Americans yet. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I hate foodie stuff. Like, I actually, like, I really hate, like, foodies, so-called. Yes. I'm not interested in the culture. I actually don't particularly <laughs> care about how food works. But it's just not interesting, right? Like, the stuff that makes food interesting is what happens outside mm. of the plate. It's the way that you approach it. It's mm. how you make it, how it makes you feel. It's how you make other people feel. Mm-hmm. It's all of this stuff. It's the cultural stuff embedded in it, whatever. And so when, when I wrote Cook As You Are anyone can cook, whatever you want to call it. Um, I wanted to not elevate cooking and not make it seem like this like wonderful, precious thing. Mm-hmm. It's funny actually with Julia and Julia, right? Like Julia Child seemed, seemed to me to have written that book with kind of straightforwardness about it. And then when it gets kind of approached by a new generation, suddenly it's like it's the most precious thing. It's like incredibly like 
special and mm-hmm. like romantic and stuff. And I actually, I'm not so keen on that. And then, so I wrote need to write a cookbook that was realistic about, do you know what? Sometimes you really don't feel like cooking. I seldom feel like cooking. Like today before we started talking, I just finished like a plate of pasta with pesto from a jar. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I know what it is to not, the idea of getting a second pan out of the cupboard is just like one too many things for life to ask of you. Like I really understand that. So I wanted to write a cookbook that saw that not as like a terrible shortcoming and not as something to be kind of got around, but just as like a fact of life and something that can be fruitful in its own ways and even even joyful if you so wish. Mm. I think that approach is so important. That's always been meaningful, but I think especially now, like the idea of anyone being able to count on the fact that they'll have energy from day to day seems Mm -hmm. more impossible than ever. And, you know, aspirational cookbooks are very fun and they have their place. And I love Martha Stewart's Entertaining, which like has recipes that (laughs) have probably been made by like 5% of the people who ever bought that book, which is probably pretty generous, actually, because it's like midnight caviar and blinis party for 12. I'm serious. (laughs) (laughs) But like, yeah, like writing something that presumes that people are just going to lack the ability to even go on some of the time or a lot of the time. It's very necessary. It also reminds me of my current favorite cookbook, Peg Bracken's The I Hate to Cookbook from 1960, I think, which involves, Mm. it's like, listen, I know you're exhausted. I know you're very stressed by the fact that you have to keep cooking for your family every day forever and ever, apparently. But just here, there's like a chapter that's literally... 30 recipes to get you through the month. And a lot of them have canned soup in them because canned soup is a blessing. Beautiful. Brian Dennehy, the rat father. Mm -hmm. Who is the daddy? I will say that it's Colette because she's the only person who really knows what she's doing or deserves to have her job by the end of it. Aside from Linguini. I think roller skating waiter is a great job for him. Although I don't know how good he is. He's probably good. And she's kind of our link to reality. And it's just nice to watch Janine Garofalo yell at guys. What can I say? I I love Colette. I mean, she's very daddy-ish. I actually, I'm going to go to the other side, to the spirit world. I'm going to say it's the ghost of Mm -hmm. Gusto. Just because he is this, he is everything that you want him to be insofar as he is absolutely a figment of Remy's imagination. And I think sometimes we need to carry someone like that in our heads. The the daddy who is either the aspirational figure or the person who's going to whip us into shape or whatever it is. So for me, it's him. So I'm going to say the same thing. I'm so glad you said that because I'm like a big... Uh, Ram Das guy and uh, Ram Das talks about how at some point in his mission as a as like a spiritual pursuer that he gave up on gurus because he was like you can just make up your own guru in your head and you don't have to be hmm. follow the whims of sort of whoever the personality is and you can establish your guru and once I added to my meditation you know like a visualization of 
an enlightened version of my father and uh, mm. some other folks who essentially like you're not looking for guidance for, but you're seeing yourself through their imaginary eyes and it creates another perspective on yourself. I I didn't expect a piece of this movie to resonate with that uh, experience, but this movie has that and it's probably the most satisfying thing now that we've dissected all the other elements. <laughs> <laughs> This has been a, just an absolute delight. I'm so glad that you came back to hang out with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I had um, I had a great time. Thank you. I'm pleased I got to talk about this thing that it turns out I don't like that much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. That is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much. To Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode and uh, for editing it, for doing it all this week. We really appreciate you. Thank you to Ruby for being on the show. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for producing the beats. Thanks to Amanda for coming on and talking about Multitude. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good or finding us on Apple podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you for making this happen. You can find us on social if you haven't already, Twitter and Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. Next week, we're talking about now and then with our friend, Chelsea Weber-Smith. This is our, our, our white whale, I would say. We've been trying to record an episode on this movie for a long time. We got to a point where it seemed so impossible. We were telling people that it's the one movie we wouldn't cover. But Chelsea came around and was like, this movie is in my DNA. I need to cover this movie. We love Chelsea. We love Chelsea with our whole heart. And we're like, okay, we will lift the now and then moratorium for one person and one person only. And that's you, Chelsea Weber Smith. Yeah, that's all you need to know. Join us next week, won't you? You are good. <laughs> <laughs>